Uh, so good to be with you this morning as we continue our series for the fall called Be the Church, looking at the, the book of Acts and discovering what this powerful book means for us today as we look at the early church and the lessons that our church can learn from it. Well, 50 years ago, if you needed something for your house, for yourself, just about anything, there was a place that you could always go to get what you wanted, and that was a Sears department store. In the late 1800s, Sears moved to Chicago, and they were known for their catalog that they would send, and, and it was kind of the original Amazon, right? Anything you needed, you could buy, and they would send it to you. In the 1920s, they started opening stores, the first store here in Chicago, and within a year or two, there were dozens of stores spread throughout Chicago. This would have been, um, this is a picture of the closest one that's to my house at Six Corners up on the northwest side of the city. They had just gotten the rights and in the early 1970s, nearly 50 years ago, built and then moved into the tallest building in the world, the Sears Tower. And real Chicagoans still call it the Sears Tower, right? We're, we're like, we're not going to change what we call that building. It's still the Sears Tower. Fast forward 50 years. To this summer, the same location here at Six Corners in Chicago, this July, was the last Sears in the city, and it had its store closing. 50 years ago, if you would have told someone that Sears department stores wouldn't exist in the city of Chicago, they would have looked at you as if you were insane. Of course they're going to exist. It's fundamental. Sears are everywhere. It's, it's part of the DNA of who we are. Yet look at everything that's happened. And if you read the news this week, you've seen that they probably will declare for bankruptcy soon and perhaps be gone. My question for us is if, if things that seemed so secure, such as this company and other things throughout the world, if those things fail, will the church fail? Even though the church, not just Moody Church, but the church worldwide has signs of health, there's millions of people who will gather all over in every country throughout the world this morning and worship God. Will the church, could this end be true of the church, that we could fail? Well, we're going to look at a passage this morning in Acts chapter 5. And as we look at what the early church faced as they had persecution, a lesson pops up that I think is so encouraging for us this morning. And the truth is this. My friends, the church will not fail because Jesus will not fail. The church in the world will not fail, and the reason we know that is because we know that Jesus will not fail. The church, the worldwide church, will not fail because Jesus himself will not fail us. Last week, Pastor Bill taught in Acts chapter 4, and Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. They were in prison and they were told by the high priests and the rulers to stop preaching this message of Jesus. Stop preaching. And Pastor Bill talked about how they, they left and rather than cower in fear, they went and they prayed for boldness. A boldness to stand and a boldness to share the gospel no matter what may come their way. And they went out and they did that. 
And our passage in Acts chapter 5, I would invite you to turn there today. We'll, we'll have part of it printed in your service insert, but the full text is in, is in the Bible. Starting in verse 17, comes on the heels of what we looked at last week. And it says this, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. What we have here is a power struggle. The Sadducees were the people who were given by Rome. They were the, supposed to be the ruling authority in the city of Jerusalem. And suddenly, someone else has power, and they are jealous. They're jealous, and so they had imprisoned Peter and John, but we're seeing in chapter 5 the persecution for the church starts to escalate. It's not just Peter and John in prison now. It's the apostles. It's all of them are in prison. They're not locked in guard in a more private cell. Where are they put? They're put in a public prison. Why? Because they want to publicly humiliate and shame them to convince the people that they have the power, not Jesus. Continues verse 19. It says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. At daybreak, they began to teach. The first key that we see, we're gonna see three keys to an unstoppable church in this passage. Three keys to an unstoppable church, a church that will not fail. And the first key that we see from the apostles is this. We see an unchanging commitment to the gospel. An unchanging commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel being the good news of all that God has done for us in Jesus. So the persecution has now has escalated. It's gone up. All the apostles are imprisoned. Yet they're miraculously released by an angel, and they're again given the encouragement, the command to go and to preach. So do they go home and say, well, we better take a little while and pray about this decision? Do they say, oh, well, we should really think this over because of the consequences of what may happen at daybreak? They were released in the middle of the night. I even wonder if they went to sleep or if they went home, freshened up, and then were there before anyone else was awake. At daybreak, they're there committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, suffering for the apostles, suffering for the early church didn't shake them from their commitment to the gospel. It didn't shake them at all. So often in our world today, we have a problem with commitment, right? If there's anything that we like in our country and in our world today, we like to have options. Who doesn't like to have options? We don't want to be tied down to something. And so people today are getting married later in life than they ever have in history. People today switch jobs more than they used to. Not just jobs, but they're switching careers more than we used to. Even people who say that they're committed to religion, they're committed to Christianity, they come to church far less than they did even a generation or two ago. See, we have commitment problems often in our culture and with our lives. And what happens when we don't fully commit to something? 
If you don't fully commit to something, what happens if it's anything, you start to live distracted because you're always looking for something better than what you have. If you're not committed, you're looking, always looking to see, is there something else that will bring me happiness right now? It's easy to abandon whatever you're doing in any time of hardship or difficulty, right? Because you're not committed to it, you can back out. And if you're not really committed to something, you don't experience the benefits and the joys often that it has to offer you. So think of a marriage relationship. Think of a marriage relationship. If, if you're not committed to that person that you're married to, if you're in a marriage relationship, you'll live a distracted life. You'll look around and think, is there someone else out there who's better for me than the one that I'm with? It's easy to abandon them and walk away in times of difficulty. And you don't experience the true joy, the true benefits of all that could be if you haven't fully committed. My friends, it's the same with us and our commitment to the gospel. We need, as God's people, as God's church in this time, to be fully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're not fully committed to the gospel as a church and with our lives, it's easy for us to see temptation, to see sin, and to think, well, that might bring me more happiness than what God could bring me. When difficulty comes, it's easy for us to back away, be like, oh, no, that was just a phase. I'm not really a part of that anymore. And we don't experience the true benefits of all that the gospel has and God would have for us unless we fully commit to it. The commitment to the gospel defines everything that the apostles and the early church were. If the church is to have any lasting power in our world today, it's the church that's committed to the gospel. If we give up the gospel, we give up everything. We give up everything if we give up the gospel. We can change our methods. We can change how we do things. Certainly, the service here this morning looked different than it did in 1925 when our first service was held in this location. But the message by God's grace of the gospel has stayed the same in this church for 150 years. And if we're going to have any lasting impact on this city for the next 150 years, it's not because of something clever that we think or that we do. It's because God's people in this church remain fully committed to the gospel. Fully committed to the gospel, even in times of persecution. We need to remain committed to the gospel because we know that the church will not fail because Jesus will not fail. The story continues, verse 21. It says, When the high priests came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them, the apostles, brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, 
The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obeyed him. The first key to an unstoppable church is an unchanging commitment to the gospel. The second key that we see in this passage, the second key is an unwavering obedience to God. The church and God's people must have an unwavering obedience to God and to his word. Picture the scene. They show up to the prison and it's empty. And they're like, uh-oh, this is something weird. And then the rumors start to flow. Everyone knows, hey, these guys who were locked up, they're not just hiding in fear, but they're actually living lives of obedience to God, publicly preaching the gospel. They're confronted. We said to stop. Peter's response, we have to go with God. We have to go with what God says rather than what mankind says. We need believers, we need in this time and in this place to have an unwavering obedience to God in our lives. Compromise in our lives is a slippery slope. A little disobedience into our lives can lead us a long way away. We need total obedience to God and to his word. A little over a year ago, I went on uh, an eating program that kind of was just to help me kind of reset my diet. Now, I eat pretty healthy and I work out regularly, but I have one big weakness. I love sweets. I love chocolate. I haven't had a chocolate donut in about two hours. All right, that's not a joke. They were in the office when I came in. It was God's will. No, so, so I went on this eating program, and, and it said for, for 30 days, you can do anything for 30 days, for 30 days, not to eat anything that's processed or has any added sugar in it. And said, you, you, you need to be strict if you're going to kind of reset your body, because if you eat one thing, one piece of candy, one thing that has this added sugar into it, the cravings will just start to come, and it's easy to spiral down back all over again. So I started, and I did a pretty good job, especially after the headaches went away after about one week. And, and I was in a good routine of this, when one afternoon, I'm sitting in my office here at the church, and in walks Pastor Bill with a box of cookies from Insomnia Cookies. The aroma of sugar flooded into my office, right? I wasn't sure if I wanted to yell at him, get behind me, Satan. Or if I wanted to say, I'll have them all. Thank you. I will have them all. 
but had to graciously say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to say no, because I know that just a little bit could lead down a way that I'm trying to get away from. It's the same with disobedience in our lives. A little disobedience in our lives can take us far from God. A little disobedience can put us a long way off course. If God's way for us is a straight line and we veer from it just by one or two degrees, it's just a little disobedience in our lives. We may not notice the consequences right away, even after a few months or a year, but if we live lives not of unwavering obedience, but allowing disobedience into our lives, at some point we'll look at ourselves years down the road and ask, how did I get up here? How did I wind up here? It's because if we're not committed to obedience, we will wander off course. And we need believers, we need to be unwavering obedience to God and to his word. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Because most Christians, if not every Christian, would agree, yes, I need to be more obedient to God. That's not a radically new thing. But how did, how did the apostles do it? How did men who a few months ago were cowering and hiding, running in disobedience, standing in bold and courageous, unwavering obedience? The key is not just their own willpower, but the power of the Holy Spirit. They had the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that you and I each have in our lives. We can only live lives of unwavering obedience to God if we're depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does it look like practically in our lives to not just practice willpower, but to have the Spirit's power in our lives? First is this, the Spirit's power rather than willpower, do we need more preparation or more prayer? If you're facing a busy day and you are relying on your own willpower and you're having a hard week, you're going to say, all right, I need to just mentally prepare myself for the task at hand. I need to prepare for what's going to happen today. Or do we say there's so much going on that I need to commit this time to prayer? The amount that you and I spend in prayer shows the amount that we rely on God's spirit in our day-to-day -day walk with him. And so many of us struggle with disobedience because we're trying it ourselves and it's evidenced by the lack of prayer in our lives. Secondly, do we draw on our own strength or do we draw on our strength from scripture? Are we relying on our own power our own abilities to overcome sin in our lives? Or are we truly, as Jesus told us, to, to feeding ourselves on every word that comes from God? See, God's Spirit wants to instruct us. The Holy Spirit wants us to walk in obedience. And the main way that God reveals his will to his people is through his word. The main way that God reveals his will to his people is through his word. And when we're disconnected from Scripture, we're not living in the Spirit's power, and we're trying it all ourselves. And that's the last thing. Do you do it yourself, or do you do it with support? Are you trying to live your life on your own, or are you surrounding yourselves with a community of believers to support you, to hold you accountable, to encourage you in obedience to God? 
Right? If we have support in our walk with Christ, it will encourage us to further obey, to follow him even more in our lives. Think of it this way. If you're supposed to go to the gym at 5.30 tomorrow morning and you're going by yourself, that snooze button looks really tempting. But if you're supposed to meet someone there, a friend, it still may look tempting, but there's a lot more incentive to go. It's the same in our walk of obedience to God. If we're trying to live Christian lives on our own, and we're not surrounding ourselves with a community of believers to encourage, to spur us on to love and good deeds, we're relying on ourself rather than on the Spirit's power. Are you living a life of unwavering obedience to God? Are you living a life of unwavering obedience to God? Or has compromise set in in places in our lives? Friends, we as a church, as Christians who want to honor God, cannot allow sin and compromise to creep into our lives if we want to have a bold and effective witness for our city, for Jesus Christ to the lost people around us. What areas of your life have you allowed to defer from what God's word says? Just a little bit. Just enough so that no one else will notice but you. And are you relying on your own power? Or are you using the things that God has given us, prayer, his word, and his people, to help rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to grow, to mature, to become more like him? in our walk with Jesus. The story continues. Verse 33. When they, the high priests and the council, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, He kicks the apostles out. He wants to talk just to the council. He says this, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. Historical records outside of scripture record this rebellion of Judas from Galilee. We don't have extra biblical stuff from Theudas, but it was a very common name during that time. A rebellion against the government. And he gives them a history lesson. He says, hey, just like Theudas, Judas as well, he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, if the church is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them 
and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They beat them. This isn't like they pushed them to the ground and now they're saying, don't do this anymore. We don't know exactly what the beating was, but it very likely could have been the 39 lashes, which would have been 39 lashes with a whip on your bare back and your bare chest. Something that they thought that if it was 40, it would have killed you. This is a gruesome physical beating that the apostles are given. Persecution is escalating. They beat them, tell them, stop speaking about Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, the one from God is Jesus. The third key to an unstoppable church, the third key to an unstoppable church that we see here in this passage is unshakable joy in any circumstance. Unshakable joy in any circumstance. They are literally beaten to within an inch of their life and they leave rejoicing. They leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. This is as well in, an, in a shame honor society where they were hoping, the, the, the leaders, the high priests, were hoping that by publicly humiliating them, that they would shut them down. But the apostles, the church, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer public humiliation for the name of Jesus Christ. They had unshakable joy in any circumstance. How could they have such joy when undergoing such difficult circumstances as they were? The persecution was just getting worse and worse by the day. I love this concept as I was reading about this week from author Max Licata, who talks about joy, and he asks if, if we have contingent joy or courageous joy. Contingent joy or courageous joy. He says contingent joy is this. I'm going to have joy if this happens, when this happens, if this thing goes right for me, if, if my get the raise, if the job goes through, if my family's healthy, if all these things are true, all these contingencies, then I'll have joy. Versus the joy that the scripture, that God offers us, which is courageous joy. And it's not a joy that says if this happens or when this happens. It's joy that says because of who I am and who God is, I will have joy. As Pastor Ed reminded us two years ago when we went through the book of Philippians, over and over again we see it. He kept telling us happiness is based on our circumstances. Joy is a state of our hearts. Joy is the state of our hearts hearts before God. The, the church in our world today needs not to have contingent joy. We need to have courageous joy. When you meet someone who has this kind of joy, it's powerful, isn't it? When they have the joy of the Lord in their life despite difficult circumstances that have come their way. 
As I was thinking this week about someone who has joy in the midst of difficulty, my mind immediately went to one of my graduate school professors who over 30 years ago, his wife was diagnosed with a debilitating illness. And here's one of the most gifted scholars in the world, an amazing theologian who has spent the majority of his adult life not traveling, not writing. He spent it at home caring for his wife. And the joy of the Lord is so evident in him. He's not complaining about the allotment in life that he's been given. He's an inspiration and encouragement to each and every one of his students that whatever the path God would have for us, we can practice and experience the joy of the Lord in our lives. As we look out at this city, at the news that comes out each and every day, our city needs joy. Doesn't it? If, if our joy is, is on contingent things and we look at the world we live in and the place in which we live, it's easy to not experience the joy of the Lord. But we can. Because our hope, our joy isn't based on if something happens, but because of who we are and because of who God is. Our worth, our hope is found in Jesus. We can have joy because even in pain and difficulty, God is not changed. He hasn't been taken away from us. We can have joy even in the face of death because not even death can separate us from Jesus Christ. I love that expression, that phrase that Gamaliel says in verses 38 and 39. If this plan, if the church this movement of Jesus in the world. If this plan is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 2,000 years of history have proven this to be true. My friends, if the church was a man-made thing, it would have failed a long, long time ago. There's no way that by the cleverness of man and their own doings that it could have ever withstood the test of time, the persecution, the difficulty that Christians have withstood for thousands of years. The reason that the church is still here isn't because of the strength of the people in the church, but because of the strength of the God of the church. The church will not fail because Jesus will not fail. Last year, a man made headlines throughout the world, a man in, in the Netherlands whose name is Didi. This is a picture of him and his family. He's a 40-year-old man, has, has a beautiful family. And they did something that was so bizarre to so many people last year. And he took everything that he had, all of his property, all of his money, and he made a huge investment putting everything that he owned into Bitcoin. Now, I don't think you have to be an investment advisor. I am not an investment advisor, so don't come ask me for my advice. You don't have to be an investment advisor to know that to put all of your resources into one thing has a huge risk. He didn't just do that, but he actually sold his house, he sold his car, he sold everything that they could to invest all of it into Bitcoin which also is confusing because I Googled Bitcoin and I still don't even understand what it is. 
And here he has invested everything. He's given up everything to invest in it. There's a huge risk involved, right? There's a huge risk because if it busts, he loses everything. So why does he take the risk? Because there's a huge potential for reward as well, right? In his mind, it will pay off. He believes it will pay off. And so he's willing to take the risk knowing the reward that could be his. When it comes to our lives and what we spend our time, our energy, our resources, what we spend our lives doing, I want to encourage us today to go all in. Not on one investment, not on anything in particular in the financial world, but to go all in for the mission of the church. Go all in with everything you have in your life for the mission of the church. You may say, well, that could be risky. It's not. It's not risky because we know what the end of the church is. It's not a risky investment taking everything that you are with your life and putting it all out there for God to use however he wants. It may seem risky from our perspective, but it's not. It's actually the safest thing we could do with our lives. Because as we put our lives and go all in for the mission of the church, there's no risk involved because the church will not fail because Jesus will not fail. The church will not fail because Jesus will not fail. The risk for us to make our lives the same as the mission of the church is none. And the reward is huge. Yet so often, we withhold from God. We hold on to parts of our lives, not wanting to give everything to him. My friends, go all in for the mission of the church. May we have an unchanging commitment to the gospel. May we have unwavering obedience to God. And may we have unshakable joy in any circumstance in which we find ourselves. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you that your church in this world will not fail because Jesus will not fail. God, may we in this time, in this place, go all in for following Jesus. May we go all in to the mission of the church. Give us the courage to invest our lives, our time, our energy, everything we have. God, we thank you for your love for the church, for your love for the world, that you've called us, you've allowed us to partner with you and the amazing things that you're doing in our world. God, may we have the courage to go all in to following you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.